0: About a dozen years ago, I was sitting on this very campus in a study group with some CH Church History 101 classmates. It was the end of the semester, and we were talking about what was going to be on the exam, what we needed to be focusing on remembering. We started listing all of the key people and events that we thought would be important to know. And then one of the guys said, hey, what about those women that Dr. Roram always highlights each week? Maybe, maybe we should uh, keep them in mind too. To which one of the other guys responded, you know, I'm gonna be honest, I'm not trying to be offensive or misogynist or anything like that. It is so nice to be in front of a group of people who get it. Yeah, I was like, what's he gonna say next? (laughs) But he said, I don't mean, I'm not trying to be offensive or misogynist or anything. Sorry, sorry. Um, I'm Armenian, I talk with my hands. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank God my preaching professor is not here. Um, He said, you know, when we get to that point in class, those last 10 minutes when Dr. Roram has finished the lecture, and then he gives that add-on about all the women in, who were also part of that era of history. He said, that's the point in class when I know I can put my pen down and stop taking notes. <laughs> you all have to stop reacting, we have to be out of here by 5. So- <laughs> So he said, he's like, it's never part of the actual lecture. It's an add-on. It's not going to be on the exam. It's not even part of the textbook. We have the church history textbook and then we have the auxiliary textbook about all the women in church history. It's just this extra information that they give in this attempt to be inclusive and make church history not all about men. So this was one of the very first conversations that I ever had in seminary about the faith of our mothers that has been handed down to us. That it was unimportant, disposable, and not part of the real legitimate story of our faith. It was disappointing. This classmate of mine was not being misogynist or protecting his privilege. He genuinely was acknowledging how deeply systemic it is that our mothers still aren't considered part of the real story of our faith and our history. Loads of work and research has been done to uncover their stories. Countless books have been published, classes taught, lectures given about the faith of our mothers and the importance of reclaiming it as part of the narrative of our Christian faith. And yet, The faith of our mothers still kind of feels like that to me. It's like we're trying to reclaim something that's not part of our real, legitimate history. I'm pretty sure, and maybe Dr. Barnes can correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't been back in 12 years, but I'm pretty sure the writings of Hildegard von Bingen or Julian of Norwich are not considered required reading in the way that people like Anselm of Canterbury or Thomas Aquinas are. Unlike their male counterparts, the contributions of women to the history and story of the church from its beginnings are not considered integral to the story, worthy of taking note. That conversation with my church history classmate was disappointing in the way that it identified a systemic reality that's still prevalent in the church. But for me personally, it was also disappointing on a vocational level. I grew up in the eastern branch of the church. My family is Armenian. My mother's side is Armenian Catholic, my father's side is Armenian Orthodox, and despite the differences that those denominational markers might indicate, there was really there was like hardly any difference between going to mom's church or dad's church. It was, it was the same three hour long liturgy, <laughs> chanted in cl- classical Armenian, which is a language nobody has spoken for hundreds of years, and with enough incense to ensure that you couldn't quite see through to the front of the room clearly. <laughs> The only two differences that I were aware of, one, in the church hall next to the framed photo of Mount Ararat and the banner proclaiming Armenia as the first Christian nation in 301 AD, they are in every Armenian church. In mom's church, there was a picture of the pope, and in dad's church, there was a picture of the Gatorigos, which is the orthodox version of the pope. The other difference was that in my mother's church, there were nuns. Not N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> N-U-N-S. <laughs> in this crowd, I have to like actually explain that, it's like the reverse of what you say to everybody else. Um, so these nuns, these sisters, they were my teachers throughout my childhood. They taught uh, at a school that I attended my whole childhood, but they never stopped being my spiritual mothers. When I was in college, I was having a conversation with one of them as I was discerning what I did not yet realize was a call to ordained ministry. And at the time, all I knew is that I wanted to give my life to God, but I wasn't sure how to go about that or what that meant for me. And Sister Louisa did not understand my dilemma. She was very quick to insist, first of all, that the Protestant church was not an option because it's not the one true church. And of course, I don't want to be led astray. So just kind of put that away before you even get started on that path. And then she looked at me with the stern, judgmental look that only an Armenian woman is capable of giving. And she said in very simple terms, Julie, Julie, you have to decide. gam Either marriage or the convent. Well, I wanted both. I wanted to be married and have a religious life. This is probably why I'm Episcopalian today. I like the both and. We're the both and people. We're both Catholic and Protestant. I've got all of my self- like this is in our like official name. I've got all of my salvation bases covered. I like it both ways. And I I wanted married life and I wanted religious life. And I didn't want them exactly in the way that she was trying to explain them to me, but I didn't know how to explain that to her because she was so certain. The definition for her was so clear cut, so defined. I learned that day that the faith of our mothers, which I had inherited, was limited and gendered. I had inherited not only what it meant to be a woman, but what it meant to be a woman of faith, a woman of God with the concept of vocation very much walled in, in strong boundaries. So when I came to Princeton seeking an understanding of God, I came here wanting to know what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today, and how God works in and through women. Because I wanted to break down some of those boundaries and erase some of those limits. From what little I knew of the Protestant church back then, I applied here knowing this would be a safe space to explore that and to be nourished by the seminary study that embraced the contributions of women as a necessary component of theological education. So you can imagine my disappointment to hear my male classmate speak of the faith of our mothers as the moment he could put his pen down and stop taking notes. Despite the fact that their stories were being told, it crushed me to hear him say out loud, so succinctly, the message that I had absorbed my entire life, women don't really belong in the integral story of the church. I don't know a single woman in ministry who hasn't felt this. I don't belong here in some way, shape or form at some point in her ministry. I'm going to be honest with you, I felt it the day I received the invitation to preach here. I hung up the phone and thought this must have been a colossal mistake. I don't belong on a conference leadership team in an institution like Princeton that's featuring big names like Katie Cannon and Miriam Therese Winter. What the hell are they doing with me? (laughs) I don't belong here. And then I read the scripture choices for today's worship And I imagine that the daughters of Zelophehad, these five named women, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirzah, they were grappling with the same message, I don't belong here. When they stepped up to Moses and they said, hey dude, we want what's ours. These women didn't yet belong on the list of eligible heirs to their family's inheritance. And they courageously challenged the patriarchy and asked for equal and fair treatment under the law. And God says that their case is just and true, and they should get what they asked for. This, the courage of these women not only grants them their request, but it reinterprets and changes the law for all future generations. Not only do they now belong, but so do their daughters, and their daughters' daughters, and all women from then on. It is no wonder the church does not tell their story. The first time I heard the story was on this campus, it was here in seminary. And I picked up my pen and I took note. I had never heard a story from scripture before that so clearly validated and affirmed the voices of women. From God's lips to Moses' ears, these women did what so many women in the church are still struggling to do today, to challenge the patriarchy to reinterpret the story to be fairer and more equitable for all of us, for all future generations. Having grown up in a church that so deeply reveres the faith and the witness of our ancestors, I have to wonder, what is it about God's activity through these women, these spiritual mothers that has not made it yet into the integral story of our faith? What is it about God speaking through the marginalized to the powers that be, to change a system that would not value them as fully human, created in God's image, worthy of all the blessings that God could bestow? What is it about God validating so clearly the voices of women who challenge those who say they do not belong? What is it about telling the stories of women who were prophets, judges, Warriors, disciples, preachers of the gospel, bearers of God in this world that threatens the story that the church has told for 2,000 years? Is it the fear that, like Miriam, we might raise up prophets to lead God's faithful people in worshiping God, rejoicing in God's goodness and faithfulness? Is it the fear that, like Ruth and Naomi, we might inspire loyalty, friendship, and commitment to one another? Is it the fear that like Esther we might celebrate powerful women and their ability to use their power to protect the vulnerable? Is it the fear that like Anna we might teach the world to glimpse the face of Jesus and proclaim God's salvation? Is it the fear that, like Mary Magdalene, we might be witnesses of the resurrection and emboldened to preach the good news? Is it the fear that, like Julian, we might see a loving mother in the face of Christ our Savior? Is it the fear that, like our mothers, for the last hundred years, we might challenge the patriarchy of the church, fighting for women's ordination and the full inclusion of our LGBTQ sisters and brothers? What is it about the faith of our mothers that has not yet become integral to the story of our Christian faith. From the days of Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza, through today, our mothers have stepped forward in the knowledge that, as Scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. And they have stepped forward in faith, with God by their side, to continue speaking out to God's faithful people, to choose faith over fear, to pick up their pens and take note of the wondrous things that God has done through them, and it is in their footsteps that we follow. Theirs are the stories we need to remember, because without them, we cannot be the church going forward. By faith, we continue to speak of the faith of our mothers so that one day, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, And Tirza will be household names. So that one day our children will learn to lead like Deborah. So that one day our children will be taught to use their power like Esther. So that one day our clergy will fearlessly and shamelessly pray to Christ our mother. So that one day, whether we see it or not, the faith of our mothers will be integral to the Christian story. So my sisters and brothers, by faith, Pick up your pens and take note. (laughs) Amen.